2: Here we go. Episode 140 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. The day after the Washington football team's name saga got set on fire via comments from Tanya Snyder. Yes, Tanya Snyder, wife of Dan Snyder. She is the co-CEO of the Washington football team. She has given her first lengthy interview since becoming co-CEO, and she, in that interview, uh, contradicted team president Jason Wright on something regarding the name change. Oh, that became a something-something late Tuesday into the night. Now, this appears to have been an innocent mistake by Tanya. Hey, we all make mistakes. It's certainly forgivable. But the best part of the whole thing Is that the mistake is rooted in a video that the team itself put out? You can't make this stuff up. Are you confused? So was Tanya. I'm going to talk about this and what Tanya had to say regarding all of the off the field issues for the Washington football team over the last year or so, especially the sexual harassment scandal. Next segment. You know, what Tanya said about the name Got the most attention, but what she said about the -the off-the-field stuff, especially the sexual harassment scandal, may well have been the most relevant thing that Tanya said. But hello and welcome to a Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It is on this Wednesday that the Washington football team is set to get back to practicing in preparation for Sunday's regular season opener against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. I have not one but two special guests related to the W, to the F, to the T for you on this show. You can thank me later. Uh, We'll go in-depth on the Chargers with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. And we're going to welcome on a noted area doctor, Matthew Mintz, to discuss the upcoming NFL regular season when it comes to COVID-19. Don't worry. This is going to be a football conversation, a conversation about competitive balance and competitive advantages and disadvantages this coming NFL season, given where we are with the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, one of the things that I want to get into with Dr. Mintz is this, is it time that we start allowing players vaccinated for COVID-19 to be able to still practice and play? You know, can we get to that point perhaps This season, Dr. Mintz has an idea that likely would come as close as possible to removing COVID-19 as a concern for the NFL. We'll certainly get into that. I have a Jimmy Moreland update for you. I'll talk Nationals on the show. Nats lost again, uh, 8-5 loss at the National League East leading Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night. The Nats pitching is abysmal, but the Nats hitting, believe it or not, is among the best in the National League. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Another big comeback by the Nats on Tuesday night. I'll talk Orioles. Uh, We had an Orioles win on Tuesday night, 7-3 the final over the Kansas City Royals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, which featured the major league debut of one of the Orioles' top 10 prospects and Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes each homering again. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Kendall. Could you talk a little, L-I-L, a little about CP. I appreciate what you do. I'm an early morning warrior myself. I fire up my FedEx tractor trailer at 2 a.m. Wow. Thank you for that email, Kendall. Much respect to you as an early morning warrior. So yeah, Clinton Portis, the man who is number two in Washington history in regular season rushing yards. Big news on Tuesday regarding CP. The U.S. Justice Department on Tuesday said that Clinton is among three former NFL players who have pleaded guilty for their roles in a nationwide scheme to defraud a health care program for retired NFL players. The alleged scheme targeted the Gene Upshaw NFL Player Health Reimbursement Account Plan, which was set up in 2006 to help retired players cover medical expenses. According to court documents, Clinton caused the submission of false and fraudulent claims to the plan on his behalf over a two-month period, obtaining $99,264 in benefits for medical equipment that was not actually provided. Clinton faces a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. He is scheduled to be sentenced on January 6th. Uh, that is very sobering news. We knew that Clinton was involved in this situation, but the fact that he now has pleaded guilty for his role in this is something else. Clinton now is 40. Uh look, I'll be honest with you. I used to do radio with Clinton. Uh I've had Clinton on as a guest on shows that I've done. I like Clinton Portis. Uh, I hate that this has happened with Clinton Portis. I certainly hope that he doesn't go to prison for long. Uh, I very much hope that he gets his life together. But if he's in fact guilty of this, then yeah, I mean, this is bad. Uh, It's well known that Clinton has had financial trouble. It's amazing to me how many pro athletes end up having financial trouble, especially guys like Clinton, who made tens of millions of dollars in his career. And we know that the financial trouble for athletes is a function of many things. But geez, there's no reason that a guy who makes tens of millions of dollars in his career and has done things that have made money post-career should ever be in a financial situation to where he's got to do something illegal like this. I mean, it's just, it's awful. It's awful. There's no other way to say it. Tweet from James C3. Can you figure out why Edsel is stepping down? Yeah. Talking about former Maryland head coach, Randy Edsel. So have you been following this? Edsel was UConn's head coach prior to his tenure as Terrapin's head coach, then became UConn's head coach again after his time as Terp's head coach. Uh, Edsel had a good run as UConn head coach in the first go-around, 2000 through 2010. Then came Edsel's run as Terp's head coach. Uh, that did not go so well, 22-34 and 34 over four and a half seasons as Terp's head coach, 2011 to 2015. Then Edsel became UConn's head coach again, and things did not go so well. Six and 32, 2017 to now 2021. So Edsel on Sunday announced that he would retire at the end of the season, but UConn on Monday announced that Edsel and Director of Athletics David Benedict had come to the mutual decision that it was in the best interest of the UConn football program for Edsel to step aside immediately as head football coach. Uh, Pretty clearly, Randy Edsel was fired. Originally, the firing wasn't going to happen until the end of the season. But UConn then decided, I'm guessing off the reaction of fans, alumni and donors, that the firing needed to happen immediately. You know, this is sort of like how things ended for Edsel with the Terps. Maryland in October 2015 fired Edsel less than four months after signing him to a contract extension. Yeah, with Randy Edsel, you think that you want him to stay until you decide that you no longer want him to stay. And the name Randy Edsel is forever a name, that does not conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings for us Maryland fans. The then Maryland Director of Athletics, Kevin Anderson, firing Ralph Regan in favor of Edsel is an all-time screw-up. You know, Ralph was not perfect, I'll grant you that, but he could coach. Maryland in 2010 went 9-4. and four. 2010 was the Fridge's final season as head coach. 9-4, and four and he got fired. The Terps haven't won more than seven games in a season since. In fact, Frijen won ACC Coach of the Year for the 2010 season, his final season as Terps head coach. Won ACC Coach of the Year. Kevin Anderson said, "Nah, Fridge. Sorry, we could do better." And Maryland football hasn't sniffed the success that the program had under Frijen since Anderson fired, agent. Decisions have consequences, like the decision of who you hire as the real estate agent to sell your home. Who you choose could make a difference of tens of thousands of dollars in your pocket. That's why you should choose John Grandlin of Real Broker. Don't go with some agent who's going to charge you some sky-high flat commission rate. John G. offers commission flex. You know how Ron Rivera talks all of the time about position flex. Position
0: flex.
2: Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, John Grandland offers commission flex, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing, so why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is gonna sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. Zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor, call John Granlin and see what he can do for you. This is a phone call that, again, could make and or save you Tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G now, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. And make sure that you ask John Granlin about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. Or visit John G sells for free, dot com. That's John G sells for free, dot com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home, and remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex.:
0: Position Flex?:
2: Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex.: Well, well, well. guess who is given her first lengthy interview as Washington football team co-CEO. Yes, Tanya Snyder, wife of Dan Snyder, wife of the Danny, wife of Danny boy. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, hello, Dan. Happy Thanksgiving. Tanya appeared in an installment of the Adam Schefter podcast that dropped on Tuesday. I have a few things to say about what Tanya had to say. So we have two parts to our conversation here. Number one, Tanya on the permanent name for the team currently known as the Washington football team. Two, Tanya on all of the off the field stuff with the team over the last year or so, especially the sexual harassment scandal. So let's start with the name. So we had that YouTube video that came out a few weeks ago, August 16th we had the release of episode three of the Washington football team's YouTube series on the name change, Making the Brand. And the highlight of that video was Washington football team president Jason Wright discussing potential new names and logos with Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew in a sit-down meeting. Toward the end of the video, which is only about three minutes long, Jason says to Ron and Martin, quote, so the three that will go through are, end quote, and then the actual names that Jason says are bleeped out. Also toward the end of the video are Ron and Jason complimenting a name or multiple names. Now, Jason Wright in a tweet on August 19th confirmed that the team was down to and working through three final candidates for the permanent name of the team. Now, this confirmation that Wright tweeted out on August 19th, saying that the team was in fact down to and working through three final candidates for the permanent name of the team. Uh, This was part of a tweet in which Jason Wright addressed another tweet, this tweet from Front Office Sports, which said that Washington had narrowed its list of permanent name candidates to three from a list of eight, the eight being eight names that appeared at some point in that YouTube video that episode 3 of Making the Brand tweeted Jason Wright on August 19th in full quote just to be clear because everyone keeps asking we are down to and working through a final 3 but this is no form of final 8 list these are just a selection of names that happened to show up in the video our team produced and quote the list of 8 was Armada, Presidents, Brigade, Red Hogs, Commanders, Red Wolves, Defenders, and WFT. Again, though, Jason Wright on August 19th said, those eight names showed up in that video, but don't take that to mean that those eight names form some final list of eight. Okay, that brings us to Tanya Snyder on the Adam Schefter podcast. Take a listen to this exchange between Adam Schefter and Tanya Snyder.
3: You know, we have a new a new name coming up.
2: We what
4: is could, that? Can, can, can you reveal that right here, Tanya? <laughs> what what Which name are we choosing? What's the deal? Is it going to be war, Red Hogs? Is it going to be Defenders? Is it going to be Red What are we going to have here? We're down to three. Are we down to three? We are down to three. What are the th- Can we say the three that we're down to? No. I heard the eight. We, we had the, the Armada, the Presidents, the Brigade, the Red Hogs, the Commanders, the Red Wolves, the Defenders. And WFT. I think those are the candidates,
3: right? That's right. Has that been said? That, that's been said, yes. Okay. But we haven't
4: we haven't whittled down the list, Tanya, to three. So if you want to whittle down the list to, to even a few more, go right ahead.
3: Well, I would love to at the right time, Adam. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. So Schefter asks Tanya jokingly what the new name will be. Lists the eight name candidates, and Tanya. When asked by Schefter whether those eight names, quote, are the candidates, end quote, she says, quote, that's right. Has that been said? End quote.
4: I heard the eight. We, we had the, the Armada, the Presidents, the Brigade, the Red Hogs, the Commanders, the Red Wolves, the Defenders, and WFT. I think those are the candidates, right?
3: That's right. Has that been said?
2: Now, Tanya sounded a little unsure of herself when she said that. It was almost like she said, hmm, are those the eight finalists? Do I know that those are the eight finalists? Were those announced as the eight finalists? And Schefter says, yeah, yeah, that's been announced as the eight finalists. No, nah, not really, Adam. That's not really what happened. Front Office Sports put out that tweet. Jason Wright shot down that tweet. However, now you have to wonder, well, was Jason Wright lying? Or was Jason Wright engaging in some misdirection at the very least? Now, to be fair to Jason Wright, we had news breaking late on Tuesday night that Washington said that the final three candidates for Washington's permanent name came from a list that included more than just the eight names that appeared in that YouTube video. So you have to laugh at this now. Because the whole purpose of that YouTube video was to incite speculation and incite conversation about the permanent name for the Washington football team. And instead, that video has just confused the heck out of people, including the co-CEO and acting CEO of the team, Tanya Snyder. Washington tried to be cute with that YouTube video. Oh, let's show them saying these names and we'll bleep out these names. And first of all, there were some people who were angered by that video because as I talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago, that video in some ways served as a provocation. But second of all, you confuse people, including the co-CEO and acting CEO of the franchise, Tanya Snyder. I will take Jason Wright at his word, but I do wonder about this now. How is it that Tanya Snyder doesn't know precisely where the team is in the name change process? That seems far-fetched, doesn't it? Again, she's the co-CEO. She's the acting CEO. At least that's what we have been told. And she doesn't know exactly, precisely where we are right now in the name change. Well, something's not right. I mean, either Jason was telling a bit of a fib or Tanya is off on what she knows about the name change right now. Uh, whatever the case, is, it doesn't come off like uh, you got the right hand knowing what the left hand is doing. This doesn't come off exactly as all buttoned up. Uh, for the record, I could live with Red Hogs, Commanders, or Red Wolves out of those eight names. Now, again, my problem with Commanders is you don't have that obvious one syllable nickname. But you do have that with Red Hogs, right? Hogs. You do have that with Red Wolves. Wolves. And I think Commanders isn't a bad name. Again, it's just you don't have that one syllable uh, means of referring to the team. But Armada, no thank you. Presidents, no thank you. Brigade, no thank you. Defenders, no thank you. That was the name of DC's XFL team. And WFT, no thank you. WFT is not a name. The Washington football team needs to ultimately pick an actual name. And I do think that Washington will be picking an actual name. Well, when it comes to picking what to do with your health, the choice is, of course, clear. You always do what's in the best interest of your health, especially your skin health. As we're coming out of summer, it's important to make sure that you're doing well from a dermatological standpoint. If you have issues with your skin health, if you have questions about your skin health, always know that a big supporter of this podcast and a big fan of the Washington football team, Dr. George Verghese, is there for you? Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board certified dermatologist at Moe's Surgeon. The Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And if you happen to be dealing with skin cancer, or if someone you know or love is dealing with, With skin cancer. Uh, We certainly hope that you're doing well, that someone you know or love is doing well. Uh, But listen up here because Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer relating to skin cancer superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. that phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so Tanya Snyder on the Adam Schefter podcast. You know, Tanya did come off as comfortable, poised. Uh, That was not surprising. Uh, She has come off in those ways for years. Tanya Snyder is a very good public representative of the Washington football team. She is a mom. She is a breast cancer survivor. She has done a lot of charity work over the years. All of that stuff plays in the media, and she handles herself well in the spotlight. You may recall Tanya's coming out party as co-CEO Uh, Tanya was on full display as new co-CEO this past July 31st, what was the final day of 2021 Washington football team training camp in Richmond. Uh, She was speaking to a crowd on a live mic on what was fan appreciation day. She threw t-shirts to fans in the crowd. Uh, She threw overhand. She threw underhand. She even threw sidearm. Okay, so she's diverse in terms of how she could throw a t-shirt. She came off well. Look, Everyone knows that Tanya Snyder is more adept at speaking publicly than Dan Snyder. When it comes to Tanya as Washington's co-CEO, remember the timeline. The Washington football team this past June 29th announced that Tanya Snyder had been named co-CEO of the team. Washington named Tanya as co-CEO of the team just two days before we learned of the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the team sexual harassment scandal. It was on July 1st that we got the findings and ultimate ramifications of the Beth Wilkinson investigation although not an actual report on uh, the investigation. So remember, June 29th, Washington names Tanya as co-CEO. July 1st, we get the results of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Jeez, what a coincidence. Golly gee, how did that happen? Uh, Anyway, the two big ramifications from the Wilkinson investigation. So you had the ramification announced by the NFL. That ramification was Washington paying $10 million which was to be, quote, used to support organizations committed to character education, anti-bullying, healthy relationships, and related topics, end quote. The ramification announced by both the NFL in a statement and by Dan Snyder in a separate statement was that Tanya, who again was named co-CEO just two days earlier, wow, what a coincidence, was assuming responsibilities of CEO and overseeing all day-to-day team operations and representation of the club on all league activities. And Dan would be concentrating his time, quote, during the next several months on developing a new stadium plan and other matters, end quote. Okay, so with all of that as the backdrop, Tanya was on Adam Schefter's podcast. Uh, This was a soft landing spot for Tanya, okay? Let's be honest about this. I have a lot of respect for Adam Schefter, Uh, he is perhaps the top NFL insider in the country. He has broken a ton of news over the years, especially a lot of news on Washington. This is interesting, by the way. Uh, It is the national NFL insiders who break as much news on Washington as the local Washington insiders. And there's a reason for that, because I believe that Washington gives stuff to the national insiders far more often than Washington gives stuff to the local insiders. But Adam Schefter is not someone who was ever going to ask Tanya a bunch of hard questions, okay? I mean, Schefter asked some good questions, but he was very nice, very gentle in this interview. In fact, Tanya at one point remarked of how nice Schefter was being. Uh, It's not your job as an interviewer to be nice. Now, you shouldn't be mean, you know, You, you don't have to be a jerk and you should try to come off in a nice way. But like being nice isn't the ultimate goal. Uh, if it happens to be something that you are, no problem. You know, I try to be nice with people who I interview, but you know, you're also trying to spark conversation. And in a case like this, in which you're interviewing a high level public figure, you're really trying to get some answers, or at least in theory, you should be trying to get some answers to things. So Tanya with Schefter had some telling remarks regarding the sexual harassment scandal. And there are two cuts that I want to play for you. First cut, Tanya on what the last year has been like for her.
3: Well, it is, um, it, I, words for me to describe this year is, uh, is very difficult. It's been one of the most difficult years and mine, uh, Dan, and I know my family's, uh, in our lives. Um, but I think, um, you know, being on the other side of where we are and learning, uh, just a tremendous amount. Um, and I, uh, my style and my wish is to uh, to turn all of these into uh, you know into blessings to to make the most of you know where we are today where we're a hundred percent owners um, and we're in a much uh, stronger position to be able to make each and every you know change that we need to make so for that I'm very excited about um, and it's uh, you know it's hard I get a lump in my throat um, and it's uh, It's a cross between a, I don't know, a crime show and a nightmare movie, but um, I'm 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 here to tell you that today, you know, I know we are doing everything possible, and I think where we've ended up and where we're heading, I couldn't be more excited. So for that, um, I think it's a blessing.
2: All right. So when asked about the previous year, Tanya called it, "quote very difficult," end quote, end quote, one of the most difficult years in mine. Dan, and I know my families in our lives, end quote. She also referred to everything as, quote, a cross between, I don't know, a crime show and a nightmare movie, end quote. But Tanya also said, quote, we're 100% owners and we're in a much stronger position to be able to make each and every change that we need to make, end quote. All right, so a lot to go through there. First of all, Tanya initially says that the last year has been very difficult. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But she then explains the last year as having been very difficult in that the last year has been very difficult for her family. Quote, one of the most difficult years in mine, Dan, and I know my family's in our lives. End quote. Uh, Okay. No mention of the, you know, victims in the sexual harassment scandal. And remember, we didn't just have like two or three victims. The Washington Post on July 16th, 2020, published the paper's first story on the Washington football team sexual harassment scandal. The gist of the article, 15 former female team employees saying that they had been sexually harassed during their time with the team. The Washington Post on August 26th. 2020 came out with a second major article on the Washington football team sexual harassment scandal. The gist of that article, 25 women telling the Post that they had experienced sexual harassment while working for the team. 40 women in just these Post articles alleging sexual harassment while working for the team. Not two or three, 40. 15 women in the first article, 25 women in the second article, was the last year not <laughs> difficult for those women? Uh, you get very little sense of empathy or sympathy from Tanya for all of the victims in all of this. And look, maybe Tanya feels like these women aren't victims. Maybe Tanya feels that these women were lying. Okay, I mean, seems like a stretch to me 40 different women all coming together for some massive conspiracy. Against Dan Snyder. But if Tanya feels like these women were liars, then she needs to say that. Or at the very least, she needs to say, I know that our team was accused of some terrible things, but I am telling you these things did not happen. Otherwise, how do you not at least say, hey, it's been a really rough year for me and my family, but I also understand it's been a really trying time as well for all of these women who came forward? You know, where was that in that cut that I just played for you? from Tanya Snyder. And look, the question needed to be asked by Schefter. Tanya, I get that this past year has been hard for you and your family, but what do you have to say to the victims of what went on inside your organization? Tanya emphasizing her family as victims, but not emphasizing the actual victims, uh, really came off as detached from reality. And then I love this, quote, we're 100% owners and we're in a much stronger position to be able to make each and every change that we need to make, end quote.
3: We're 100% owners, um, and we're in a much uh, stronger position to be able to make each and every you know, change that we need to make.
2: Uh-huh. Dan Snyder has been the majority owner of the team, now known as the Washington football team, since May 1999. It is true that he's even more of a majority owner now, having bought out the three disgruntled former minority owners earlier this year in Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. But Dan has been in a position to make whatever change is needed for 22 years. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. I mean, what Tanya said, we're 100% owners and we're in a much stronger position to be able to make each and every change that we need to make. That line was an obvious shot at the three former minority owners, Shaw, Rothman, and Smith. We know that things got very ugly between Dan and those three guys, but the idea that now the Snyders can do what needs to be done because those meany pants former minority owners are gone, that's absurd. That's blame shifting. That's doing the thing of trying to make it seem as if Dan couldn't do what needed to be done instead of acknowledging the reality of Dan having been a big part of the problem because he at the very least allowed this stuff to happen under his watch, if not outright participated in the stuff. I mean, who does Tanya think that she's fooling with this? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. And you know, this is a talking point that Dan has used. Oh, I wasn't very involved in recent years. I need to be more involved again, bro. It don't matter how involved you've been. This is your team. You've been the majority owner since again, May, 1999. Everything that has happened has been under your watch. Take responsibility. The buck stops with you. The blame starts with you, and that doesn't mean that everything is all of your fault, but a big part of leadership is accountability, not blame-shifting, and we continue to get blame-shifting. I was disappointed in that from Tanya Snyder in this interview. Now, Tanya, in that cut that I just played for you, also said, quote, I get a lump in my throat, end quote. When asked about where that lump in her throat comes from, Tanya said the following,
3: well, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's the pain that, you know, from our family, from my children and, uh, you know, just, just a lot of the the tough times, um, you know, that we've, that we've gone through and just, um, as you know, the media, it's, it's, um, it is what it is. It, everybody's going to say whatever. <laughs> um, and I guess when you have a void and you, you don't have your voice out there, people can say whatever. And, and that has been the case. So, um and that's
2: what I mean. All right, so Tanya again plays the family card. Quote, well, I just think it's the pain from our family, from my children, just a lot of the tough times that we've gone through, and as you know, the media. It is what it is. Everybody's going to say whatever, and I guess when you have a void and you don't have your voice out there, people can say whatever, and that has been the case, and that's what I mean. End quote. But this family stuff, nobody wants to hear the family stuff. And look, I understand that it's not been a great year for the Snyders. Dan's mom passed away. Okay. He's been mourning her death. Like, I have sympathy for that. I think most people do too. We know the Snyders have three children. Nobody has anything against the Snyders' three children. I can only imagine uh, what some of those children must hear as, uh, you know, their lives have gone on about their dad from people. So I get all that part of it. But like zero acknowledgement of, yeah, it's been tough for us, but I know that it's also been difficult for these 40 women who were subjected to treatment in the workplace that nobody should ever be subjected to. Like, there's none of that (laughs) in what she says to Adam Schefter. Uh, You know, the media thing, whatever. Like, I mean, that's an easy thing to do, blame the media the media encompasses many people. So to me, you have to be specific with that. I'm open to the idea that the media coverage at times is unfair. Okay, I've said this many times. There is bias in the media. There are some excellent people in the media. There are some not so excellent people in the media. There are hardworking people in the media. There are incredibly lazy people in the media. So I'd have to know more about who specifically she's talking about. Like to just say generically the media, like, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who fall Under that umbrella. But that's fine. Like, you want to take a shot at the media that that you know, I I don't get bothered by that. But this continued thing of the family, our family, like, okay, you can bring that up. All right. She's a mom. You know, you have that protective mama bear instinct. I can understand that and appreciate that. But (laughs) where where is any acknowledgement of all of these women? And again, it wasn't two or three, it was 40, 40 freaking women, unless you think they're all liars, unless you think they're all hussies unless you think they're all Jezebels, these women got harassed. Nobody should be subjected to that in the workplace. And oh, by the way, the Beth Wilkinson investigation confirmed these things. Okay. The Beth Wilkinson investigation, while we never got a written report, did not say, yeah, you know, we're not so sure about all this. The Beth Wilkinson investigation said, yeah, uh, this place was a mess. This culture was absurd. Okay. There was a summary that came out Regarding the Beth Wilkinson report, that summary said quite a bit. So look, Tanya Snyder, I think she's a very good public representative for the Washington football team. She does speak well. She speaks confidently. She has a lot going for. Okay, I don't think she's some horrible human being. Just like, by the way, I don't think that Dan Snyder is some horrible human being. I just think that he's not done a very good job as the owner of this team. I think he's made a lot of mistakes. I think he's acted irrationally way too often. I think he's acted immaturely way too often. And all we can hope is that he's learned some lessons from things. But, you know, we've said that many times. And we keep being disappointed in the lesson learning that has not been taking place. But Tanya Snyder, at least for now, is the public face of the Washington football team. And I'm interested to see. If she takes criticism for this interview, or if she skates by, Tanya is someone who's not as easy of a target as Dan. And now that Tanya is co-CEo and is the public face of the Washington football team ownership, uh, to me she's fair game, okay? She should be held to the same standards as anybody else. Like just because she's a woman, just because she's a mom, just because she's a breast cancer survivor, like that doesn't mean that she's immune to criticism here. And I think what she said to Shafter is worthy of some criticism. All right, so the Washington football team did not practice on Tuesday, will practice on Wednesday. There was, though, some news regarding the Washington football team on Tuesday beyond Tanya Snyder speaking on the Adam Schefter podcast. And the news included this, Jimmy Moreland now is officially gone. The pride of James Madison the people's corner, the man known as Jimmy Effin Moreland, no longer officially on the Washington football team. Now, you may be saying, Galdi, what are you talking about? Washington released Moreland in the cut down to 53 more than a week ago. Uh, Yes, you are correct. But there were some technicalities in all of this. So Moreland suffered a minor injury in Washington's preseason ending 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx field on August 28th. What ended up happening was that he was released with an injury designation. Moreland then cleared waivers, just like every other Washington player who was released in the cut down to 53. And so Moreland was returned to Washington, which then placed him on the reserve injured list in a procedural move. Uh, then Washington waived Moreland with an injury settlement. He did not clear waivers in his second go-around through them as the Houston Texans on Tuesday claimed Moreland off waivers. So he cleared waivers the first time, did not do so the second time. I still would like to know more about why Daryl Roberts, Tory McTire. And Troy Apke all made Washington's 53 over Moreland. How did Moreland go from being good enough to be the top nickel corner on a very good Washington pass defense last regular season to not being good enough to be kept over Daryl Roberts, Tory McTyre, or Troy Apke? And if you want to take Apke out of the mix, because he was kept primarily for special teams reasons, fine. But he still was kept over Moreland. Uh, you can always email me, the Algaldi Podcast. At Yahoo.com. Email from Dale Martinez. Writes, Dale, as a stat head, it would be fun to do an advanced stat review of Jimmy Moreland. I agree. Don Ron and company did a great job with their cut list. The cut player that generated the most controversy was Jimmy Moreland. It would be interesting to review Moreland's advanced stats and games played to answer the question, do the stats give clues to why he was cut? Uh yeah, Dale I actually have brought this stat up. I'll bring it up again right now. Jimmy Moreland for the NFL's Next Gen Stats was the number three slot corner in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Moreland ranked number three among all qualified corners in slot coverage success rate, which is the percentage of targets as the nearest defender that result in a successful play for the defense. Qualified corners. With those corners, each with at least 50% of defensive snaps coming at slot corner and each with at least 50 times targeted as a slot corner, Moreland's slot coverage success rate per the NFL's next-gen stats in the 2020 regular season was 57.6%. The number one slot corner in terms of slot coverage success rate was Chauncey Gardner-Johnson of the New Orleans Saints at 59.5%. Number two was Jordan Lewis of the Dallas Cowboys at 59.1%. Jimmy Moreland, again, was number three. So NFL next-gen stats say Jimmy Moreland was a really good slot corner last regular season. Now look, maybe Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio will tell you that Jimmy Moreland wasn't nearly as good Last regular season, as the NFL's next gen stats say, and that's fine. Ron and Jack deserve the benefit of the doubt on this Moreland thing. I've been very consistent in saying that. I just have a curiosity regarding what happened with Moreland, and it's disappointing to me that Ron has barely been asked about Moreland. And by the way, it was a surprise that Moreland got cut. Anyone who tries to frame Moreland being cut, as not that big of a surprise is lying. I can't stand what people do that, by the way. Something surprising happens, and in order to come off as in the know, a person will say, oh, that's not that surprising. Mm, Yeah, it is. Jimmy Moreland being cut is surprising. Nobody who I'm aware of had Jimmy Moreland being cut. And so when a surprise cut like that happens, it's worth exploring what happened. He has been claimed off waivers by the Texans. We'll see what becomes of the People's Corner moving forward, but I think this is a worthwhile issue here. What the heck happened with Washington's number one slot corner from last season? Well, when it comes to this coming season, the 2021 regular season, that begins for the Washington football team Sunday afternoon against the Los Angeles Chargers. At FedEx Field, we will go behind enemy lines regarding the Chargers with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times after this. The Washington football team begins its 2021 regular season this Sunday afternoon at one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field as we, on this Wednesday, enter into the heart of the practice week. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest, Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. Jeff was actually on this podcast back in June to discuss a terrific piece that he wrote about former Washington quarterback Cold Brennan, who died in May At the age of 37. It's uh, nice to have Jeff on to talk about something happier here. Uh, Jeff, good to talk to you, man. How are you? Good, Al. How are you doing? Doing well. Appreciate you coming on. So the Chargers, a perennial preseason darling, a team that is almost always talented, but a team that seems to do just enough each season to not make the playoffs. Chargers did go 12-4 in 2018, but that's the team's lone playoff appearance, Over the last seven seasons, the Chargers have made the playoffs just two times over the last 11 seasons. What's the prevailing feeling about the Chargers entering the 2021 season?
5: Well, you're going to be really surprised that there's optimism here, (laughs) (laughs) which which you said it is uh, the Chargers uh, are one of those franchises. And I think if you go back 20 years or so, I mean, and it's probably because they've always had a quarterback, whether it was Drew Brees or whether Philip Rivers or now Justin Herbert, they've always had hope and always had expectations. And, and again, they're, you know, they're kind of the, uh, dark horse, uh, contender pick, you know, all over the place. Uh, and it's, I think that's just kind of the way this, you know, it, it's a good thing for Charger fans a good thing for the franchise that they're relevant. They're, they haven't gone through any of these real dips where they're just, they fall off the radar completely. But, uh, you know, people are excited here. They've got talent. They've got playmakers. They've got a quarterback. If they can stay healthy and if they can get any kind of offensive line play and their offensive line can stay together, which they've, Struggled to do the last couple of years, especially. They have, they have a chance to be pretty good. I you know I'm not going to say they're a Super Bowl contender. That's a little a little bit much. But there's no reason why they they couldn't be. Uh, you know, in a uh, a position to make a run for a postseason berth if, if all those things can can align for them. That's a lot to ask for, but it's possible. I mean, they've got they've they've got a good team. I think I think both these teams are, are very similar in terms of if you project the season. I think they're both uh, kind of a very similar similar teams in that regard.
2: The Chargers have a rookie head coach, Brandon Staley. He's just 38. He got the Chargers head coaching job off just one season as defensive coordinator for the Crosstown Rams. Uh, what has stood out to you about Brandon Staley so far?
5: Yeah, super smart guy, very well organized. Just this guy thinks about everything, um, he uh, is a great teacher. He's really passionate about teaching. It's it's in his his family. Both his parents started off as teachers. His his mom apparently uh, uh, was a great uh, teacher. Uh, it really influenced him a lot. And he he's very passionate about it. I mean, he you know, the other day we we were talking to him about teaching and trying to you know install his systems and all this stuff. And literally, the guy gets like glassy eyed, emotional, talking about teaching. It's like the weirdest thing. You know, you, usually these football coaches get all excited about talking about X's and O's. And, and this guy, he, he talks about teaching, and it just means so much to him. So he, I, he, he you spend five minutes with him, and you understand why, why he got the job and why he's so impressive in interviews. He's just a really, really... Uh, just a smart guy, not a yeller, screamer, but real. there's no question of his passion and his love for what he's doing. And he talks all the time about, you know, he, he lived his whole life for this, to be an NFL head coach. And when you see him in the job now, it's true. I, I don't think there's any question. He, he literally lived, you know, his 37 years or 38 years to get to the point where in January he was able to say, uh, yes, I'll take this job. And now he's an NFL coach. So he's been very impressive.
2: Was Staley's approach to the preseason at all controversial, resting so many guys, or were most people on board with that?
5: Yeah, the, with the way things have gone here with injuries, I think everybody was on board with it. Um, certainly, the, those of us who've been around the team the last few years—you uh, know, Derwin James—they lost in the last two August. You know, he got hurt in training camp. Uh, just Joey Bosa, you know, the year before that got hurt in training camp um so I think everybody was on board with hey you know there's no reason to play these guys and no reason to force anything um let's just wait for the regular season and not take any chances so uh the players all you know whether any of them didn't like the idea or not they certainly didn't share that with us they all said they were good with it and um so uh I, I think just from a from an organization standpoint I, I I think they were I think they were just fine with it and I think what what we saw last year with the Chargers and with teams all over the league that not having a preseason didn't seem to hurt them and certainly didn't hurt Justin Herbert at all. You know, came in the week two having never played and any kind of preseason or any kind of you know, had very little off you know off-season work all that stuff and he he excelled right from the start so I think given that the results last year and just the history that they've had of guys getting hurt early they were perfectly fine well let's let's just wait for the real stuff
2: yeah so with Justin Herbert of course a terrific 2020 rookie season. It was interesting, Jeff. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Monday basically admitted that knowing what he knows now, he wishes that he would have taken Herbert and not Chase Young with the number two pick in the 2020 NFL draft. Were even the Chargers surprised with how well Herbert did last season, or was there an organizational belief that Herbert just might be that good that soon?
5: I think they were they were surprised uh they had to be I don't think anyone thought he was going to do what he did right from the beginning especially to be thrown in the way he he was unexpectedly in that second week um you know everyone thought it would be Tyrod Taylor again there's no reason not to and then we all find out you know as the game's starting that that Herbert's going out there, he, you know, and he, for much of that game, i played Patrick Mahomes, they've played the Chiefs, and of course, in classic Charger fashion, they mumbled a little way at the end, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I, I think they knew they had a, they had a good prospect, and I think they, everyone understood his arm, you know, he has a, a strong arm, and he's accurate, and everyone understood that stuff, but I don't think there's any way that anybody thought, you know, I, I talked to the, one of the guys who coached uh, one of his Herbert's personal coaches over the uh, this past offseason, and even he said, I, "I never would have thought he'd be this good." And this guy worked with him every day and saw him, and, and has worked with a bunch of NFL quarterbacks, and he he said that, yeah, I, we thought he would be pretty good, but nobody—I don't think anyone realistically would have thought, "Hey, this guy's going to come in and be the offensive rookie of the year."
2: Are there nits to pick with Herbert? Are there things that he needs to improve on for this coming season? Or is it basically, hey, kid, just do what you did last season and we'll be just fine?
5: Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. Just, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. He, There really isn't a ton of, uh, you know, there's not like a real obvious thing. You know, he, When you ask him those questions, he'll talk about, you know, knowing the playbook better, knowing the offense better. Which I, I think quarterbacks will always say that. I Tom Brady even says that. I think to this day will say stuff like that, uh, and you know he'll talk about footwork and just sort of the, some of the nuance and stuff. And and there's certainly things, no question, that he can, he can get better and probably will get better. But in terms of if you're just going to sit there and watch watch these games as a um, you know just as a football fan and as somebody who follows the game a little bit, maybe not diving too deep into the real, you know breaking down the real X's and O's all that stuff inside that, you know, really crunching it down. There really isn't much to say, Oh, if he can only do this a little better, if he can only do that a little better, or if he wouldn't do this, you know, he, you know, he, he was a little susceptible to, you know, sometimes he'd make a decision and try to force a ball in there and maybe trust his arm a little too much. But I, I you know, if you're, if you're, the Chargers, if you had this guy in your team, you're going to live with stuff like that. And and who knows, maybe this year, you know, he'll be able to make those, he'll be able to force those throws in there. He's, he's that talented. But there really isn't much, Al. I think it's just, it's just kind of, their hope is that he just keeps progressing. And, and if he had the same season, same kind of season he had last year, I think they would be perfectly delighted with that.
2: We're previewing the Washington football team's week one opponent, the Los Angeles Chargers with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. So you earlier in our conversation referenced the Chargers offensive line. Chargers have a rebuilt offensive line. How much better do you think that it is compared to last season's?
5: Well, they can't be a lot worse, I don't think. <laughs> That's the main thing. Uh, that offensive line last year, God bless those guys, they tried hard and they, they played hard, but they, they were undersized and just... Uh, A lot of late round draft pick types, uh, undrafted free agent types, and just just never really were able to 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 gel and get it together. And had brought in a couple of veterans, and they both got hurt. Uh, So. It's just it just didn't happen. Uh the last couple of years they've tried to rebuild things, and it just hasn't worked. Uh this year it seems like they've made a little more of a commitment. They certainly have made a little more of a commitment. I shouldn't say seems like they have. Yeah, you know, they signed Corey Lindsley, a veteran center, all pro with the Green Bay last year. People a lot of people talk about him being the best center of the league in the league. And they uh they drafted Ray Slater in the thirteenth pick overall left tackle. Uh, Northwestern so I think both those guys are, are major major upgrades um, and they brought in a couple of veteran guards that they hope can uh, you know can solidify the inside a little bit and then they've got Brian Balaga on, on at right tackle the issues with with balaga he just he's had a hard time staying on the field since he's got here last year he, and uh, he's hurt you know He's been hurt a lot of training camp, or at least been maybe not hurt, but he's missed a lot of time just trying to get him to this opening game. And right now, they don't know if is going to even be able to play on Sunday. So they're already a little uh, – you know, there's already some – kind of hand-wringing a little bit just uh, if these guys are going to be able to stay on the field, but if they can stay healthy, they should be a lot better, but it's just, you know how it is in this league, if you lose one guy up there and now you starting to shuffle things around and you've got to change things to help out the new guy with a, you know, uh, with your scheme, and it, that takes away some other stuff, so Everybody thinks sitting here right now, week one, that the line's going to be a lot better. And I think, it, like I said, it can't be worse, I don't think. But it's going to come down to health and if they can just stay out there together and, and start building some chemistry and get a little momentum.
2: A lot of weapons on that Chargers offense Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Austin Eckler. Chargers did lose Hunter Henry in free agency. Is that significant, or are the Chargers equipped enough on offense to where losing Henry isn't that big of a deal?
5: I don't think it'll be major. Uh, they added Jared Cook, uh, who had been with the Saints a long time. You know, tight end. People recognize that name, I'm sure. And he's uh, he he had a really good uh, August year. He he looked really good. He and Herbert sort of hit it off right from the start. Um, so I think I think he, Cook is going to kind of fill in that spot. It's uh, it's not a long term solution certainly, but for this year, I think he'll he'll fill that spot, and I think he'll fill it well. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to be a major, uh, a major drop off. And and you mentioned the other guys they've got. They you know they do have some playmakers. So yeah, I do think Jerry Cook is going to fill that spot uh, well. And uh, I, I don't think there'll be a, a significant loss there.
2: With the Chargers defense, of course, a defensive-minded head coach in Brandon Staley, a new defensive coordinator in Ronaldo Hill. Chargers still have the likes of Joey Bosa and Derwin James, but a lot of defensive players left the Chargers this past offseason. Melvin Ingram, Casey Hayward, Rayshon Jenkins, Denzel Perriman. What do you like about this Chargers defense? What are the questions with this Chargers defense?
5: I think uh, you know Joey Bosa and Derwin James. You see, you nailed it. Those two guys, if they can stay out there and uh, both stay healthy and stay out there, they're, they th- those guys are both you know all pro type players. James is an all pro as a rookie, and we're we're all interested in seeing him play. He's, he's played only five games the last two years combined because of injury. So he he it starts with him, and the, he's really the guy. He's the quarterback. He's the guy who calls the signals in the huddle, relays the signals from Staley. Uh, and, and the head coach uh is going to call the defense. Uh, you mentioned Hill, the defensive coordinator, but Staley is. This is his defense. He's he's calling the signals, and this is the defense he ran with the Rams last year. That was that was number one in the league. Uh, obviously, Washington was number two. So, uh, you, you know, you guys know how good Washington's defense was, and you know the Rams' defense was even better. So, Staley coordinated that defense. He's going to you know coordinate this defense for all intents and purposes. So, it, it's it's really James. It starts with him. And if he can stay out there, they're going to play him all over the field. And uh, it, it, it's really uh, that's the that's the guy to watch on Sunday it, when he's out there. Just you can watch where he number thirty three. He'll, he'll be lining up all over the place. They'll be using him to to do everything, and, and he's really a fun player to watch. So we're we're really, you know, those of us who follow this team are, are really interested in seeing him because we haven't really seen him playing at a high level since his rookie year. And we saw what that looked like, and it was pretty cool. So uh, it, that's really the, the place where the defense starts, and it really revolves all around him and his availability.
2: Yeah, it's interesting with James because, again, going back to the Justin Herbert-Chase Young thing, there was quite a bit of conversation with that 2018 draft here. Washington takes Duran Payne. A lot of people around here, myself included, wanted Washington to take Derwin James. Payne has been good. James, like you said, first-team All-Pro as a rookie, but has played in just the five games over the last two seasons. But the belief is that he's a great player. It's just he hasn't been able to stay healthy these last two years, correct?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think uh, anybody doubts him. We, we saw what he did as a rookie. He was sensational. And it's just a you know question of if he can stay out there. And I think, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, a lot of people have kind of speculated well, that, you know, he, he did have an injury at Florida State, similar to what he's had. Um, here so that maybe that's why he, he slipped like he did in that draft as you mentioned he, he did a lot of teams pass on him that that year and the chargers were happy to take him but maybe that was part of the reason why he did slip was that there was some fear about his you know his, his injury potential now who, who knows i mean it's easy to say that now but uh if he can stay out there he he's a, a big time difference maker and he's there's not you know there's not a lot of players like him in the league he's he's that
2: good all right exit question i'm just curious about this in la which nfl team is the bigger deal the chargers or the rams
5: Yeah, you know, that's a great question i think most people would just say oh it's rams right and and it probably is but it's not as big a gap as you might think and uh you know and the, and the thing that everyone says here all the time is "Oh, the raiders are still the, the most popular team in la and maybe huh. they are they might be <laughs> frankly i mean they're there's still a ton of Raider fans here, and you know how Raider fans are. I mean, they're uh, they're the ultimate diehards. So, uh, but it's uh, I, both these teams. Trust me, are they're you know they're fighting to for a foothold. They're they're trying to establish themselves. The Rams are going through the same stuff, uh, and it's just in this market you have to you have to win. You have to do it in an entertaining way, and you have to do it year after year just to, to get noticed. It's, it's that kind of market. Other than the Lakers and Dodgers, that's what it is. So uh, I would say right now the Rams are a little bit ahead of the, the Chargers, and then probably the Raiders are ahead of both of them, to be honest.
2: <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on again. Really appreciate it. Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. All the best.
5: Thanks. I appreciate you.
2: Me too. Well, as we prepare for the start of the Washington football team's regular season, we are attacking the season from all angles. And right now we're going to attack the season from the standpoint of something that unfortunately remains a thing, COVID-19. But what we're going to do is discuss COVID-19 in terms of competitive balance and competitive advantages and disadvantages. This is not a uh, public service segment in which we're going to be lecturing people. Uh, This is not a segment in which we're going to be getting into the politics of the pandemic or anything like that. This is a segment in which we're going to have a football conversation regarding COVID-19 in the upcoming NFL regular season, especially as it relates to the Washington football team. And joining me now is Dr. Matthew Mintz. He is a Bethesda-based internal medicine and primary care physician. He has been rated as a top doctor by both Washingtonian and Bethesda magazines. You've heard me do ads for Dr. Matthew Mintz. Uh, This segment is not a paid-for segment. This is not some version of a lengthy ad. Uh, I asked Dr. Mintz to come on the podcast as a friend because he's a great doctor. He's a big Washington football team fan, and he sent me an email recently exploring an aspect of the NFL COVID-19 situation that you likely have not heard much about. Dr. Mintz, it's great to have you on. How are you? Great, Al. Great to be here. Appreciate you coming on. So, you believe that the NFL should mandate that players get vaccinated for COVID nineteen, and you believe this for competitive balance reasons, in addition to obviously public health reasons. But uh, lay out, if you would, your thinking behind this stance.
6: Right. So, I mean, just broadly, you know, obviously uh, as a physician, I'm very pro vaccine. I think the vaccine's been around for a long enough time. It's very safe. We know that it's very effective. So I think that everybody should get vaccinated. I do understand that people have sort of their personal choice and their rights. So I I wouldn't, for example, recommend that the government mandate vaccines for everyone and people who are unvaccinated get arrested to be forced to be vaccinated. I'm not of, of, of that nature. People do have some choices, but so do businesses, Um, And businesses have the the right to have policies such that their employees get vaccinated. Um, When this whole thing sort of broke out and the NFL decided we're deciding what to do, it was a much different time. We didn't know a whole lot. The vaccine was pretty new. And I thought that they struck an interesting balance trying to create policies that – um, I wouldn't say compelled players to get vaccinated, but uh, suggested that their lives were going to be pretty difficult if they weren't. But I think times have changed. Uh, we have the new Delta variant. We have breakthrough cases. And most importantly, at least one of the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, has been fully approved. And so with that, if I was You know, the commissioner of the NFL, if I was an owner of pretty much any company, I would say that my employees should be vaccinated um, because it affects my my company's product. In this case, the NFL, Uh, the NFL is weakened when you don't have healthy players. And if an important player like a quarterback, let's say, gets on, comes down with covid or gets it on the covid list that wrecks the entire schedule for everybody.
2: Yeah. And. Just from a standpoint of like, if we're being selfish about it, right? The Washington football team, you could have teams that you're competing with win games because those teams' opposing teams are minus key players because of COVID-19, et cetera. So there is that aspect to it, which I think is interesting, and like I said, has not come up a lot. You know You brought up the idea of the NFL and what it has done. It hasn't mandated getting vaccinated for COVID-19 for players or even staff, but the league has put in place all kinds of mechanisms that make your professional life pretty inconvenient and pretty onerous if you don't get vaccinated for COVID-19. Why do you think that the NFL hasn't just mandated getting vaccinated for the virus when the league is pretty clearly in favor of people being vaccinated for the virus?
6: yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I'm a little surprised at this point that they haven't. Again, I understand why they, you know agreed with the NFLPA. Um, at the time when you know a year ago or more when that decision was made i'm surprised though now that other companies have started to mandate vaccines that they haven't but you know just i I just read in the post that zach martin of the cowboys is probably going to be out for thursday's game now as a washington football fan you know from a competitive advantage do i care if the cowboys lose no i'd love for the cowboys lose uh, to lose but um but, you know, but, but, but the, the same thing could happen to my team, uh, and you know, it's it said in the paper at least that you know, Mr. Martin was reportedly vaccinated, so breakthrough cases do happen, but we don't know because that's not something that's officially reported.
2: So we know that being vaccinated for COVID-19 lessens the severity of the virus, should you get it. We know that being vaccinated for COVID-19 lessens the likelihood of you spreading the virus. And we know that NFL players, generally speaking, are young and healthy people who likely would do just fine with the virus anyway. So given all of that, I wanted to get your take on this. When it comes to players who are vaccinated testing positive for COVID-19, is there a legitimate argument? that those players still should be allowed to practice and play? Or medically speaking, is the prudent thing to do still to not allow players who test positive for COVID-19 to practice or play, even if those players are vaccinated? That's
6: such a good question. And so Again, part of this would be eliminated, or part of the controversy would be eliminated if all of the players were, were vaccinated. So, you know, the, the Delta is really, you know, the whole COVID pandemic has really made us, you know, um, humble, if you will, uh, like, like, uh, like you, you play that soundbite of the Iron Sheet. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, it really has because you know when we think we know what's going on, you know, something comes along. Delta variant is a, a really good example. And so, you know, we used to think that if you were vaccinated, you were pretty much protected. Uh, You weren't going to, you were a low likely of transmission. You were less likely to get it. Uh, And it was a pretty low risk. And with the Delta variant, You know, and the increased number of cases, we know that we can have breakthrough cases. Now, the good news is that if you're vaccinated, the chance of becoming seriously ill is is very, very, very low. And especially, you know, for an otherwise young and healthy player. So, for those players who are vaccinated, their risk of you know serious illness is exceedingly low. That you know, if they if they you know uh, if they were to come in contact with someone, that it would it would be. It'd be very low that, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about. But the problem is, is that we don't know that all players are vaccinated. And the other thing is, is we do know that even though your risk of transmitting COVID is less if you're vaccinated, it's still possible. So if 10%, you know, 90% vaccination rate sounds pretty good. But if 10% of your players are unvaccinated and someone tests positive for COVID, they could theoretically transmit that virus, even if they weren't sick, to an unvaccinated player and that person could get very sick. Now, as, you know, a young, healthy person, yes, it's true. Your risk of dying from COVID is is low compared to, let's say, um, you know, a 65 year old, you know, with diabetes. But it's not non-existent. So. I think, you know, the, the the policy currently is relatively prudent in that if someone tests positive, even if they're vaccinated, they should probably, I believe the policy is that if you test positive, you have to remain isolated and you can return to duties 24 hours after no symptoms and a negative test. I believe that's their policy. I haven't looked over it lately, but, um, and that seems prudent for right now, but if everyone was vaccinated, if you knew that every player Every referee, every coach, every staff person, if all of them were vaccinated, it would not be unreasonable to let them play if they tested positive without symptoms. But that requires everyone being vaccinated. And that's why I think it should be mandated.
2: Yeah. And so I I think that's a very key part of all this that you could get to a place where it's no longer, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. If somebody tests positive for COVID 19, it's like, okay, you tested positive, but because everybody's been vaccinated, you can move forward and practice and play. That would be such a great place to be. Right, and just, I, I,
6: and just and again, to, to, I don't want to segue against football, uh, segue away from football, but you know that's where we'd like to be with the country. If everyone was vaccinated, in the country we could go back and live our lives and, and not go crazy with COVID. If everyone were vaccinated, or if almost everybody were vaccinated, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. People have made a choice not to do so. But in a corporation, in a company like the NFL, you could have that if they mandated a the vaccine.
2: So one of the really interesting things about last NFL season is that there was never any actual evidence of on-field spread of COVID-19. That's not to say that on-field spread of COVID-19 is impossible, but there really wasn't any evidence of that. It sure seems that the breakouts that did take place, and there weren't many, but that did take place were confined to teams, and it seemed to happen like within team facilities, that kind of a thing. Do you have any sense for why that is that a sport with, you know, all these guys on the field, you know, breathing on each other, grabbing at each other? We never really had any evidence of on-field spread of the virus. Is that simply because football is played outdoors? Is it maybe that there was on-field spread and we just don't know about it? W- what do you make of that?
6: Well, I think there's a couple things. Uh, well, first of all, I think it is because it is outdoors. We do know now that the spread is much less likely if you're outdoors. Um Certainly, social distancing helps, and and while the players are on top of each other for small periods of time, it's not like, let's say, a wrestling match. Um, where they're on top of each other for prolonged periods of time. Um, but the other thing to think about, too, is that last season happened before the Delta variant. And so the, the things to understand about the Delta variant versus, you know, the COVID that was out last year is that, fortunately, the good news is, at least at least for now, it seems like uh, the Delta variant is not more life-threatening than the previous variant. So, um you know, if you're vaccinated, you're still, you know, just as likely to be protected uh, from getting seriously ill or dying. The difference is, is the, the Delta variant is much more contagious. That's the difference. And so who knows if we had Delta last season, whether that same thing would be the case or not. My guess is probably not. So I think it's a combination of, yes, it's outdoors, but also the fact that um, it was an earlier, an earlier variant that
5: wasn't as, as contagious as Delta is.
2: So when we hear about breakthrough cases right now, people who are vaccinated for COVID-19 testing positive for COVID-19, is it a safe assumption that most of those breakthrough cases are the Delta variant or some other variant?
6: Well, right now, yes. So the predominant virus, and again, I don't know the stats completely, but at least 90% now of all cases that test positive in the United States are the Delta variant. So the Delta variant is basically taken over as the very dominant uh, strain of COVID that people are getting in this country and most of the world. So yes, when you test positive for COVID, you're most likely getting that Delta variant.
2: With the Washington football team, we don't know exactly where its player vaccination rate for COVID-19 now stands off the cut down to 53 and uh, some maneuvering since then. But we do know that on August 24th, we had multiple reports that Washington's player vaccination rate for COVID-19 was at 90% as of that morning. Tom Pellicero of NFL Network last week reported that the league-wide player vaccination rate had held steady at 93% post-roster cuts. As a doctor, what's your reaction to the NFL having a league-wide player vax rate of 93%? I know there's been a lot about, you know, specific players who aren't vaccinated, but that seems to me like a really high number, 93%, and that's post the cutdowns to 53.
6: No, that's fantastic, though. I mean, that's great. I mean, you know, there there may always be a few people for, you know, religious or other reasons that can't get vaccinated. So trying to get to 100 percent is almost impossible. And, you know, 93 percent is very good. Again, just from a that's from a doctor standpoint but from a fan standpoint i don't want to see any of my players you know have to sit out and and not help my team win um you know because of uh, because of a policy that says that if you test positive regardless of your symptoms you have to sit out. So I guess as a, as a fan selfishly I would like to see you know 100% or as close to 100% as possible. Again, yeah, 93% is pretty good but it's not 100%. And I don't think you're going to change I don't think any policies are going to change you know anytime soon unless the NFL does what other companies Major companies like I think uh, I think Walmart is mandated vaccines. I can't remember the the number of companies, but a number of companies have mandated that all employees get vaccinated. So, again, 93 percent is great. If 93 percent of our country was vaccinated, I'd be thrilled. Um, But 93 percent is probably not going to get you to strip some of these protocols that could change the outcomes of of games.
2: Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Final question. What do you think about our team this season? What kind of a season is our team going to have?
6: Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. I'm actually really, really excited. I'm really excited about the upcoming season. Um, you know the, the, you know, we went from, I think it was three and thirteen to NFC champions. And yes, I understand that that, you know, last year the NFC East was, was pretty abysmal, but we did that with, with I think the worst quarterback play in the entire league. And so now you have a a pretty solid defense that's been, you know, reinforced and you actually have a competent quarterback. I believe in Ryan Fitzpatrick and who now has some weapons. So I, I, we have, so I think we did pretty well, you know, last year, all things considered. And so I'm really looking forward to the possibilities. I think we're going to be the sleeper team this year. No one, you know, if you, if you read these reports about, you know, the predictions, you know, all these pundits make for the future. The, the Washington football team is not on anybody's radar at all. Um, they seem to sort of ignore us. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I like being a sleeper team, but I'm, I'm very excited for the upcoming season.
2: I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Very excited as well. Dr. Matthew Mintz, Bethesda-based internal medicine and primary care physician, rated as a top doctor by both Washingtonian and Bethesda magazines. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, great being on the show. It's amazing how much your perception of a baseball team can change over the course of a season. This season's Nationals are actually very much an example of this, even though, yes, uh, this season's Nationals are not good. Uh, so the Nats on Tuesday night clinched not having a winning record this season. Not that that was ever in doubt, uh, but the Nats now are 57-81, and an 8-5 loss at the National League East leading Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night in game one of a three game series. Nats now have an NL East worst run differential of minus 81, but the Nats in this game came back again. The Nats overcame a 5 1 seventh inning deficit with four runs in the top of the seventh. As bad as the Nats are this season, and they are bad, how about this? The Nationals, as we speak on this Wednesday, are fourth in the National League in Team OPS at 753. The Nats can hit. The Nats are actually a top five offensive team in the National League this season. There are 15 teams in the NL. The Nats, as we speak, are fourth in the NL in Team OPS at 753. The pitching has been the problem. The pitching has been abysmal this season. The Nats, as we speak, are 12th out of 15 teams in the National League in Team ERA at 476. But when the epitaph is written on the 2021 Nationals, and that epitaph is coming, uh, what needs to be understood is that the pitching was really bad. The hitting actually ended up not being that bad. And it's a funny thing, right? Because for a while this season, the hitting was the problem. The Nats couldn't score runs to save their lives. But the offense got going and even with the sell-off in late July, the offense has continued to go. It says a lot about a lot that the Nats have continued to hit despite the sell-off. The Nationals routinely come back in games. The Nationals routinely hit home runs and score runs. The Nationals just can't pitch. And that's the problem. And that more than any other reason is why the Nationals are 57-81, and 24 games below five hundred now on the season. So the pitching in this 8-5 loss at the Braves on Tuesday night began with Paolo Espino, who actually had been good in each of his last two starts, but he struggled for the first time in three starts. Five runs in five innings, he gave up seven hits, a homer, two doubles, and four singles. Issued two walks, did have seven strikeouts, but he threw 92 pitches over the five innings, and it was bad from the get-go. Gave up three runs in the bottom of the first, issued a lead-off six-pitch walk of Ozzy Albies, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. Paolo then gave up a one-out full-count single to Freddie Freeman to conclude a 10-pitch plate appearance, in which Freeman was down in the count at 1.02. And then Paolo gave up a big blow, a two-out three-run homer to Adam Duvall to left field on a 1-2 pitch. So Paolo had Albies down at 1.12, ended up issuing a leadoff six-pitch walk. Had Freeman down at 1.02, ended up giving up a one-out 4 count single. And then had Duvall down 1-2 and on a 1-2 pitch, gives up the three-run bomb. Uh, Paolo allowed a run in the bottom of the third on a one-out double by Freddie Freeman, a two-out five-pitch walk of Adam Duvall and a two-out RBI double by Travis Darno, on which Duvall was thrown out at home. And then Paolo gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth on back-to-back singles to begin things, and then a one-out RBI sack fly. Uh, Paolo only went five innings. That meant more usage of multiple relievers in the National's bullpen. And as has become the case Nats relievers didn't all have it in this game. Davey Martinez, again, had to use three or more relievers in a game, this time four. The four relievers combined to allow three runs in three innings. Uh, Andres Machado was good, perfect bottom of the six, but Ryan Harper was not. He was really bad and what ended up being a Braves two-run seventh, allowed two runs and facing three batters and getting no outs, gave up a leadoff four-pitch walk to Eddie Rosario, gave up a tie-breaking two-run homer to Ozzie Albies for a 7-5 Braves lead and then gave up a first pitch double to Jorge Soler. Yeah, the Nats tied the game with a four-run top of the seventh and then gave the lead right back by giving up two runs in the bottom of the seventh. Thankfully, Alberto Baldonado cleaned up the Ryan Harper mess in that Braves two-run seventh. I tell you, this guy Baldonado is pitching well, so he comes into the game, runner on second, nobody out, Nats down 7-5 and retires three of the four batters he faces. To prevent any more runs from scoring in the inning. Uh, the Nats just brought up Baldonado from AAA Rochester. Selected his contract from Rochester last Wednesday, September 1st. Uh, Baldonado now four and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts at the major league level for the Nats this season. Uh, but Sam Clay then came into the game and he gave up a run in the bottom of the eighth inning. The pitching is the thing. The hitting, remarkably, is not. And the hitting on Tuesday night included Yadiel Hernandez. He was the Nats' starting left fielder at number six batter. He went two for four with a three-run homer and a double. Uh, Yadiel in the top of the fourth had a leadoff double. Yadiel in that Nats' four-run seventh, the biggest blow of the game offensively for the Nats. A two-out first pitch game tying opposite field three-run homer to left center field to tie the game at five. Look, Yadiel can hit. We're learning that here this season. The guy now has an OPS on the season of 783. He's not known as a good fielder, although he made a really good fielding play in this game. yell a diving forward catch in shallow left field of a liner off the bat of Travis Darno with runners on first and second for the final out in the Braves' two-run seventh. How about Juan Soto on Tuesday night? I mean, we're running out of ways to praise this guy, but let's just keep praising this guy. The dude got on base five times on Tuesday night. Your Nationals starting right fielder at number three batter, Juan Soto, two for two with an RBI single, another single, two walks, and a hit by pitch. Soto in the Nats one run first drew a one out six pitch walk, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Soto in the top of the third drew a one out four pitch walk. Soto in the top of the fifth had a one-out single. Soto in the Nats 4-1 seventh had an RBI single. And then Soto in the top of the ninth drew a one-out hit-by-pitch. Juan Soto now, as we speak on this Wednesday, a major league leading 449 on base percentage and a major league leading 114 walks. Alcides Escobar got on base two times on Tuesday night. Your Nats starting shortstop and number two batter, two for five with a double and a single. Escobar in the Nats one run first, a one out double off the left field wall on an 0-2 pitch. Escobar in the Nats four run seventh, an opposite field single to right field. Escobar now with an on-base percentage this season of 339 over 232 plate appearances with the Nats. Riley Adams continues to hit. So he was a Nats starting, catcher and number seven batter as k Ruiz continues to deal with a bone bruise in a knee although uh, K-Bert did pinch hit in this game popped out uh, but Adams on Tuesday night the Nats starting catcher number seven batter one for three with a double a walk did strike out twice but top of the second leadoff double top of the fourth one out five pitch walk Riley Adams now 985 OPS over 66 major league plate appearances with the Nats. Uh, Carter Keboom had another RBI hit in this game on Tuesday night. Your Nat starting third baseman at number five batter, one for four, RBI single. Did leave five men on base, but top of the first, a two-out opposite field RBI single on a soft hit. You know, basically what was a cue shot into right field, but that counts. That plates a run, so good piece of hitting there by Carter Keboom. Now, he did have a terrible uh, base running moment in the game. Uh, Keyboom in the top of the fifth picked off at first base with runners on first and third and Yadiel Hernandez batting for the third out. So that was a prime run scoring opportunity with Yadiel at the plate. But kiboom he was like asleep. He never even made it back to first base. The throw gets uh, made to first and kiboom gets tagged and never ends up touching first base. Like he was that out in terms of being picked off in that moment. That's inexcusable. That's the kind of thing that cannot happen. And you're going to have stuff like that happen when you're playing so many young players, but that's the sort of thing that happens once and that should never happen again. But Carter Keboom offensively has demonstrated improvement these last few weeks. And like I said, RBI single in that top of the first for the Nationals on Tuesday night. The Nats can hit. The pitching is the problem. Game two for the Nats at the Braves, Wednesday night at 7.20. Sean Nolan will start for the Nats. And this is something right here that epitomizes the Nats not pitching well this season. Sean Nolan, who entered this season having not pitched in a Major League regular season game since October 2015, now is a mainstay in the Nats rotation. This will be his fifth start for the Nats. Now, he has been decent over his last two, including in that 6-10 2 inning loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park. This past Friday night, two runs in five innings, but that's not the point. Sean Nolan isn't supposed to be starting games for the Nationals this season, but he'll be starting again and at the NL East leading Braves, Wednesday night at 720. Well, we have three wins in four games for the Orioles, who, yes, were back in the win column on Tuesday night. And the Orioles, again, in the win column! Yes, Joe Angel, the win column for the O's. Uh, A 7-3 win over the Kansas City Royals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 2 of a four-game series. O's now a major league worst of 44-93 on the season. And there was actually some excitement at Camden Yards on Tuesday night because the Orioles, earlier in the day, called up one of their top 10 prospects. And remember, the O's, per MLB Pipeline, have the top farm system in baseball. So the Orioles on Tuesday called up the number 10 prospect in the number one farm system in the sport. Uh, the Orioles' number 10 prospect per MLB pipeline is reliever Mike Bauman. And the O's on Tuesday afternoon recalled Mike Bauman from AAA Norfolk, and he ended up making his major league debut on Tuesday night. Pitched in relief and pitched well. Uh, allowed just an unearned run over three and two-thirds innings. He retired 11 of the 14 batters he faced. Uh, Mike Bauman's an intriguing prospect, listed as being 6'4", 235, throws well into the 90s. The O's took Bauman in the third round of the 2017 MLB draft out of Jacksonville University. Look, uh, he's a reliever, so, you know, there's only so much impact the guy can potentially have. But the Orioles need any quality pitching they can find. So if they've got this guy, Bauman, who can be a reliable reliever, And I know that's kind of an oxymoron because relievers by definition, essentially, are not reliable pitchers. Uh, But if Bauman can be one of the few reliable relievers, then there's certainly value in something like that. It was nice to see him make his debut. And, you know, as this Orioles season winds down, you take whatever you can get in terms of excitement, in terms of intrigue in these games. And Mike Bauman helped to provide some intrigue on Tuesday night, as did two Orioles building blocks who are killing it right now. Cedric Mullins, And Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins on Tuesday night, your Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, a leadoff six pitch walk in the Orioles four run first and a leadoff homer on a bomb to right field in the bottom of the seventh inning. Cedric Mullins now has homered in each of the last three Orioles games. He, in game one of this series, the 3-2 loss to the Royals at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon, served as the Orioles starting DH and number one batter, and had a leadoff double in the bottom of the first and a two-out solo homer to right field in the bottom of the fifth. Cedric Mullins now this season, 27 home runs, batting average at 307 on base percentage at 371 slugging percentage of 542 and Mullins is number three in the majors in hits this season he has 159 hits on the year he's been outstanding I mentioned Austin Hayes he is on some kind of tear right now uh Hayes on Tuesday night was the Orioles starting left fielder and cleanup batter I mean that would have been unthinkable not that long ago Uh, Not right now. Austin Hayes is slang it. He comes through in this game on Tuesday night to the tune of an RBI ground out in the Orioles' four-run first, a two-run homer on a bomb to left field in the bottom of the third to extend his career-best hitting streak to 14 games, and Hayes drew a two-out full count hit-by-pitch in the bottom of the fifth inning. So Austin Hayes now 16 home runs on the season. He's got his OPS up to 737. On the season, game three against the Royals at Camden Yards Wednesday night at seven oh five. Matt Harvey will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com Thursday show episode one hundred forty one will feature a full, complete, in depth report of your Washington football team Wednesday. The team will be back practicing. Where are we with Curtis Samuel? What did Ron Rivera have to say at his post-practice press conference? And if the schedule from previous seasons holds up, what did Ryan Fitzpatrick have to say at his post-practice press conference? Traditionally, Washington's starting quarterback speaks on Wednesdays via post-practice press conference. Also, we'll see if anything else emerges regarding the name saga, which, of course, got even more confusing on Tuesday with these Tanya Snyder comments on the Adam Schefter podcast. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday.
4: I heard the eight. We, we had the, the Armada, the Presidents, the Brigade, the Red Hogs, the Commanders, the Red Wolves, the Defenders, and WFT. I think those are the
3: candidates, right? That's right. Has that been said?